0: Welcome to the Know It Some Podcast, bringing you the widest variety of conversational interviews for a well rounded perspective on life. Because while it's true, nobody likes a know it all, it's also good to know it some. Here's your host, Steve Platt. That's right, I'm Steve Platt, and you're listening to the Know It Some Podcast, an affiliate of the Big Three Roll Up Network. Welcome back to all of our weekly listeners and a big thank you for supporting the show as subscribers. Please continue to tell your friends. I really love hearing from new listeners who were referred to the show. I I read and respond to all the messages that come in and it's been so wonderful to get all the positive feedback again. Thank you. And if you're a first time listener, thanks for joining us. Be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. Go ahead and do that now before you forget. And if you like the show, please do us a favor and give us that five-star ranking on Apple or iTunes because doing so helps us continue to bring on interesting guests each and every week, and it really is the best way to support the show. Another way to support the podcast is to follow us on social media. You can find us at Know It Some Pod. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, etc. That's Know It Some Pod on all social media platforms. Okay, this week's guest is a man of many talents. He's an actor and martial artist. He's from Chicago. You might recognize his work from doing commentary for mixed martial arts across multiple organizations or as the host of the hit show Human Weapon, formerly on the History Channel. Jason Chambers is an incredibly interesting guy who shared with us some great stories. And, you know, he was a tremendously gracious guest. His latest film, asked me to dance just wrapped up shooting and is currently in post-production so follow him on social media for that release date please welcome my friend jason chambers hey jason welcome to the know It's on podcast
1: good to be here finally
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah we, we had some hiccups but I'm glad that we were able to make this work I appreciate it greatly um you know how, how's the family doing good
1: family's doing good
0: um you were this was like third time the charm like the first time uh, we were
1: supposed to do this I broke my pinky second time the wife got ill I had to take her to the hospital and today I went to the gym and I swear to god I almost didn't go because I was just like it's my first time going back to a gym in probably about three and a half weeks right. um, just the first week just missing it because of being uh just life happening and in the last couple of weeks because of the pinky and I was like damn do I go I'm almost <laughs> sure if I go I'm gonna break a toe or something I'm gonna get in a car wreck on the way there it's, uh, so it was a it was a big win leaving today
0: stretch a little extra before you you hit the the workout kind of warm up a little extra than than you would normally um, yeah, yeah I'm not... Sure. I'm not trying to develop that reputation for, for having a, a bad omen for, for my guests, but I, I think that might be a thing at this point.
1: Um, yeah, this, this is like becoming the Conjuring series, like every episode is a new frightening tale of how the guests got to be where they're at.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I so I want to ask you about this because I've, I've seen this about you online uh, uh, quite a bit, um, but I, I haven't seen it on video or anything uh people calling you hollywood so the nickname hollywood um you you didn't grow up in hollywood right i mean you you're you're from chicago area from chicago yes so how did you end up getting that nickname how did you end up in hollywood in entertainment um you know when did you know that you wanted to work as an actor and in in entertainment
1: so um there's there's like three questions in there so how did i get the nickname (laughs) How did I get the nickname Hollywood? So the nickname Hollywood, I guess it kind of parallels into how I got involved in the uh, entertainment space. So I've always had kind of two passions when I was growing up. One of them was uh, martial arts, because like many people, uh, I was like picked on and bullied by a couple of kids in grammar school. So I got into a martial arts program and um, just really gravitated towards that. And the the classes were uh, Jeet Kune Do classes. This was back in like 1994, 1995. And the class structure was an hour and a half long. And the first like 30 minutes was kickboxing. The next 30 minutes was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with a gi. And then the last like 20, 25, 30 minutes was trappings of JKD stuff, kind of the wing chunk. So those were really the first evolution of mixed martial arts. Okay, backing up for a second. Aside from that, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school yeah, so I really, yes. Yeah, okay. so, like the only way to 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 meet girls was to do intramural sports, and that wasn't my cup of tea. And then the other option was to do theater at the girls' schools. So I would go and I would like audition to like theater at the girls' schools. And one of the schools actually had this insane auditorium, uh, Maria High School in Chicago, which ironically not only now is a is a public school, but it was a it was the high school my mom went to back when Jesus Christ was uh, also <laughs> a classmate and.
0: Uh-huh right when, when burger king was a prince so mm-hmm.
1: so i always i always had these two kind of passions that i balanced right i had the martial arts side and then i had that theater side because like i was saying you know you had to go to a female school to be able to to to, to meet any girls otherwise you had to do intramural sports so those were always kind of like the two things i was balancing so i would um you know, I was training and doing martial arts, and I had an opportunity. I did some Brazilian jiu-jitsu matches back in the early 90s. And then, like, around 1997, 1998, these events called, like, Battle of the Masters were pretty popular. And they were doing them in Iowa. And these, they even had some, like, underground MMA stuff where you'd go to these bars like Finkies in Indiana, and you could just sign up to go fight. It was, like, open palm. It was the, the very... Early days of any, and I, I use the word structured mixed martial arts because sanctioned wouldn't be the right word. It wasn't right. even sanctioned yeah. until a few years ago. Um, these events. So, uh, the guy that I was training with, Joe Goitia in Chicago, was promoting one called, I think at the time it was called the Jeet Kune Do Challenge. It later got rebranded as the Total Fight Challenge. And it's where, um, like Matt Hughes, one of the first UFC champions at uh, Walter Way Champions, uh, had his first fight, and a lot of people um, from the Midwest came up through those ranks, tons of UFC guys. So I had my first match there because I was like, Oh, I can make a few bucks and do that. And, um, you know, so the way I got the nickname Hollywood was I was always doing silly dumb shit. Like I would dye my hair blue. <laughs> uh, I'd like shave a Mohawk and dye it yellow and stuff like that. And also probably I was tanning way too much. Like I was addicted <laughs> to tanning beds. Like I grew up in the sync Backstreet Boys era and, uh, mm-hmm. You know, like I was in denial for a long time that I was the sixth member of, of Sync, but I think I probably was. I mean, I was going, my buddies and I would go like tanning and then we'd go out to like this Club Zero Gravity in Chicago. It was horrible. But um, so anyways, long story short, uh, somebody was like, man, what do you think you're in Hollywood? You're always like, you're tanning, you're going, you're dying your hair. Like I was probably the only only goofball that would go out to fight at 18 years old and have like fully done hair like does that matter, right <laughs> like like it's so important you have pomade and hairspray like there's probably some poor guys that i fought back in the mid-90s in the minnesota that had like aquanet dripped into their faces mid-match so <laughs> so um well, that was just kind of that was just kind of the balance in it, and um, it just kind of haphazardly became the nickname that uh, i guess i rolled with for a little while and um yeah so that was that and then i moved it moved from um so actually there was that was kind of the, the stepping stone there was a I, I believe there was a, a, an agency called Aria in Chicago and one of the people that was fighting on the card um her her like aunt or something was like the owner of this talent agency and I had went in and met with her and she kind of steered me in the right direction because there's this um like you know in the United States we don't have we don't have uh, royalty right so celebrity kind of becomes our royalty and people kind of discount the the ability that it takes to um, to really be successful in the entertainment career you hear about all these like oh I was walking on the beach and this manager plucked me up and now I'm a Disney star and three weeks later I'm in, I'm in Transformers like but <laughs> but for every one of those outliers and those unicorns there's fifty thousand people that didn't get those opportunities and it really is an amalgamation of having to be in the right place at the right time because I don't care how great of an actor you are! Um, you have to get lucky to book these roles, right? Because well. you, I mean, so many times you walk into a casting. Let, like take an episode of like CSI New York, right? Mm-hmm. Like they get they get a breakdown for you know um, Frank the hot dog vendor, and he's got ten lines, right? Well, n- not only do you have to look like what the casting director thinks you should look like, you have to really be incredibly lucky to book anything in the entertainment world because you know you can be like if you go to school to be a doctor and you really persevere and you buckle down and you do great and you do well on your on your mcats and you do well in in med school and you do well in your residency for a large part of your career, you have a tremendous amount of control over the trajectory of that. It's unlikely that you'd go to med school, do really well, graduate, you know, cum laude, uh, and then just not be able to find a job. Mm-hmm. That's like not the case when it comes to like the entertainment industry. You have to get lucky because, you know, first of all, if you take a hundred people, probably 75% of those people just don't take the business that serious. And they never really go to a class they don't study because there's no unless you go to like juilliard or you're getting a theater degree which a lot of those theater degrees still don't even really teach you the business of acting mm-hmm. they give you like a lot of background and you're doing these stupid anthologies and monologues and it's just it's really antiquated. So, um, you know, you have to get lucky. And, uh, that's the, that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand. So I, uh, I talked to the girl that ran ARIA and she was like, you got to get in some classes. And because I was really like a nerd when it came to like the martial arts stuff. And, and like, when you step into a cage to fight, you, you, you get exposed immediately. If you're not prepared, anyone can say, Hey, I'm going to fight next weekend at this event. But if you think you're a good fighter, you'll find out really well where your weaknesses are because, um, you know, like, look, most people, go through their lives endeavoring to a, avoid confrontation. But when you have a set date where someone's training, peaking, getting in shape to kick your ass, like they're in great shape to do so. And, and should arguably be well-rounded in any of the myriad of different disciplines needed to accomplish that. Right, so, right. Um, you know, you go in and, and, and I kind of brought the mentality of my martial arts training, over to the acting side where I was very focused and let me, let me get these classes done and let me just make sure I can get in these things. And, um, and when from Chicago, I left and went to New York and it uh, lived in Brooklyn for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, submitting myself uh, for background work on like soaps or anything that was shooting out there. And, and uh, I had a few background working days as a, as an extra on, uh, I got off as, as the world turns, i worked on a bunch of the soaps, but that led to my first uh it's called u5 we have under five lines which is one of the the after at the time it was after which was american federation of television radio artists and sag were two separate unions uh screen actors guild and okay. um that was how i got my my after card. was i finally got a couple lines on a, on a shitty little soap opera like and of course <laughs> like like i did the typical thing every like background person that has like five or th- three or four lines like like all they want you to do is bring the menu over and say here's the menu let me know when you're ready to order. But like what happens is is you feel like this is the your Oscar moment so you overact. <laughs> you overact the shit out of it and it's like you overprepare so much for this stupid line and it's crazy and um uh, you know so uh, but I did that for a little bit and I was also bartending in New York while simultaneously training uh, at the Gracie's and, um, a funny story. I was, I was, uh, bartending in, in Manhattan and I was just messing around with flair bartending, you know, where you flip the bottles around and you do some cool stuff to kind of keep yourself entertained. Yep. And, um, I, I was working on a, a soap opera, which I don't know if anyone uh, that's um, you know like males in our demographic have ever really watched a soap, but for the most part they're overly dramatized. Everything is life or death, super high stakes, and it's very serious. Yep. This is not a place where a bartender should be in the background flipping bottles. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I remember the first time I got yelled at on a set. Uh, there's this really intense scene that's going on about 30, 20 feet in front of me, right, and I'm just in the background, just supposed to just be wiping down the the bar or something, or making fake drinks and setting them up or doing bar cleanup, and they're talking about how like you know they can't find the missing girl and the sister's now been cloned and the brothers banging the alien friend's neighbor's cousin and I don't know, it's all it's craziness, right? But it's this intense scene. And then, like in the background, I'm over there like throwing bottles up and spinning them on my head, (laughs) and like it looked like it looked like horrible Cirque du Soleil. But it, it, long story short, uh, I was not working on that soap after that. (laughs) So, so um, yeah. So from there, I uh, I went to Los Angeles, and this whole time, I kind of had that that mix of like um, you know training, but just really to like I never wanted to be a professional fighter. Like my goal was never, man, this is a, a viable career path by any stretch of the imagination, because especially back in the early two thousands um, it just wasn't financially feasible. I mean there, if there were a hundred guys in the UFC, which was arguably the pinnacle of mixed martial arts, except for maybe pride at the time, there was only maybe one or two guys that were really making uh, deep six figures. I'd probably say that 20 of the top hundred guys in the UFC were making enough money To um, sustain themselves and and sustain themselves, I don't mean living like a pauper 30 40 $50,000 a year like sustain themselves, where you know hey look you can take a week off you know they're making six figures, because the first the first UFC contracts, I mean like here I had, I finally got to a place where I was uh, offered a contract to fight in the UFC and it was supposed to be against Spencer Fisher. And it was on okay. the U- UFC 60 card, which I think was just a 15 year anniversary recently. It was like in May, it was Hoist Gracie fought Matt Hughes. It was a big, big card. And okay. um, like the way the fights work is you get, Pay and show, or you get a show and win money. So if you go into fight, you're guaranteed X number of dollars, and then if you win that fight, whether it's through submission, TKO, judges' decision, you're declared the winner, you get an additional amount, and and it's typically a double. So if you were getting fifty thousand to show, if you won, you got another fifty grand. The problem was back then, and this was like UFC 60, right? Like 60 pay per views in Matt Hughes, Hoist, Gracie, big card at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. Well, like you're fighting the toughest guys in the world. And I remember the first contract and this was across the board. It really didn't matter who you were unless you came as a superstar from somewhere else. But the first contract was two and two, um, four and four, six and six. So it's like two and two, you could train for eight weeks get an m you got to pay for your own mri you got to pay for your own physicals your blood work you typically flew in an additional corner man you had to put them up you had to pay for all your supplements your training camps you could go fight in the ufc and even win your first match and come out upside down which the economics of that to me was just crazy so um you know so i was supposed to fight spencer fisher in the meantime i had done the pilot for human weapon which uh, i found haphazardly uh, on my own i had representation in los angeles and i was doing a little bit of this stuff but i found uh, i found this audition on on this forum called the mma underground forum which was Subfighter before that and uh auditioned for it didn't think anything of it ended up booking it and they're like hey this is a we're gonna do a pilot so we went out we went to thailand we shot the pilot for like 10 days they really didn't know they had a general idea of what the show was going to be they weren't super specific on You know, what would the episode actually look like? So because of that, they have to shoot an exorbitant amount of footage so that the network has a lot of different opportunities. If they go back and say, man, we really love this aspect. Let's see more of that, less of the fighting, more of the culture stuff. So we, we filmed that, and we didn't hear anything for several months. I mean, we heard a couple – every couple of months we'd hear, oh, you know, from the production company. It's looking good. They really like it. It's looking good. Uh, it's looking good. A um, couple little changes. Um, but, you know, for the most part, pilots, and not to be redundant if, if your audience is listening to this or you know, but they'll make – like the television industry hasn't figured out a, a better way to – to streamline this process, so they'll make 50 pilots. They'll shoot an episode. They'll cast it. Everyone on it. It's just as if you're on the the 90th episode of Seinfeld. Everyone's got their paychecks. It's a big production, and then um and then they just take that one episode and then they test it. The audience. Te- they they do focus groups. They go, "What well, do you like? It do you not?" And out of like 50 maybe like one two three will get picked up into series so it feels like when you book a pilot uh oh man this is it this is my big break and it can be a big break but for the most part you know 95 percent of those just fall by the wayside so and this was just some history channel show that you know this does not have the budget of a nbc network series like you know we were making peanuts uh, everyone figures if you're on tv you must be rocking ferraris and now you're living in mansions <laughs> and stuff which just isn't the case at least in the very beginning so we didn't hear anything, and I got this contract for the UFC. And um, and Joe Rogan was a good friend of mine, and uh, we at the time we uh, were training at 10th Planet. And I remember I got the contract, and I was like, "Well, this is cool. This would be a cool opportunity. At least I can get a little get my name out there a little bit, make a few bucks." Because I was living in LA, and uh, you know I was super broke. And um, you know the the show got picked up, and I remember asking Joe, like, "Man, what do I do?" Because Joe and Eddie Bravo were definitely a large part of the reason that I had the opportunity in the UFC because they had Joe Silva, the former UFC matchmakers ear a lot. And that was coupled with things like, I don't want to name names, but a couple UFC vets had come in to train and did did jujitsu at Eddie's. And uh, I submitted them and Joe was like a big jujitsu nerd. He was like, Oh shit, you know, Chambers is (laughs) tough and he's he's really good at jujitsu and this and that, but you know, jujitsu is not fighting. And I mean, I, I, I had arguably decent high school wrestling and, decent, mediocre hands. Um, my, my big attributes were just that I was just tough. You know, I just, I got my butt kicked for so long under the worst circumstances ever that like getting in, in a cage, like I'd stand toe to toe with anybody. I really didn't care. Uh, and, and oftentimes came out on the losing side of that decision. But, um, you know, so I had that opportunity and I was like, man, Joe, what do I do? And he's like, man, if you don't have to fight, don't fight. And I remember thinking about that and just going, you know what, man, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's great. It's a good, good advice because like I was saying, I mean, at that time the money was so shitty you'd watch the ufcs and they'd have a guy getting ready to go into the cage and, and goldie at the time uh you know, goldberg and um and mike goldberg and joe rogan they'd be talking and they'd be like oh this is a you know um uh, frank Mir. he's a he's a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt he's also a construction worker hailing out of idaho and it's like <laughs> you had to have you had to have a job just to support to support this right. crazy passion it was insane so um you know, uh and really the big tipping point for the UFC was the Ultimate Fighter Show, which really kind of helped push that more mainstream and and stuff. And uh and even now, like People go to the UFC and I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think the base pay is like fourteen and fourteen. So if you finally get to that level where you're like, all right, I'm gonna get in there, you can and, and you're gonna get some money from Reebok, you know, you can fight and you win in your first fight, you're still gonna walk away with 30, 35, 40 grand for your first fight, which is which is uh it, it makes it more viable as a career path. Now, if the money was better like that when I started. You know who knows? Maybe I would have been more dedicated and more committed to it. But um, you know, I really was. A, I w- I had no illusions of of um, being a UFC champion. I feel very much like I would have been that gatekeeper. Win two, lose two. Win one, lose one. Get right. cut. So, <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> but but so so at that time, right? You 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 had shot the pilot. It looked like you were gonna be on that UFC 60 card. I'm guessing that one of the big decisions to not take that fight was that the pilot got picked up. So, so what was the initial order for Human Weapon? Did it get picked up for a full season, or were they like, "Hey, we'll let you do you know x number of episodes"? How did that look at uh, when when you got the call that, "Hey, you know, we're we're actually going to make this show"?
1: Yeah, so that was a that was a a cool moment. Um, you know, they they called us and they were like, "Hey, we want you guys and, and you guys meaning me and Bill Duff to come to Knoxville, Tennessee, which is where." Uh, Jupiter Entertainment, the production company was based out of it. And, and I and we we all but knew that the reason we we're going there was because it was getting picked up. And they they picked it up for, gosh, I wanna think it was a full season. I don't know if that was 10 or 12. I mean we did a total of I think it was 20 episodes. Some of those were like, they re and diced a couple of them just to kind of put it together. So they they picked it up and, they, and then it was like, go, go, go. So the way that we we shot that was we'd, we'd fly somewhere and then we'd be gone for three weeks. So we'd fly like theoretically to France and then we'd go from France to Greece, then from Greece to Israel and then we'd go back home. Uh, and then we'd do all that. Yeah, we'd shoot it. So, it, it, you know, and it's it's a very like surreal feeling i remember the first like when we were shooting it at first you know and we started getting more comfortable as like what 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 the show was and stuff it, you know there were certain changes that got made along the way because bill duff who i'm still good friends with to this day i love the guy like a brother um you know like there's he's i mean i was six feet um you know 175 pounds at the time bill's 6'4 280 and <laughs> you know when we go to we went to southeast asia for the first few episodes. And the way the show was supposed to work was they were going to have the the grandmaster was going to pick which one of us fought their champion at the end of the episode. Well, <laughs> like, like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a giant to the average Filipino bill isn't an option to most people generally so like right so for the first like three or four shows they kept picking me and i'm like back to back just getting my ass kicked and i'm like we need to mix this up a little bit man (laughs) like this (laughs) show is going to be sponsored by ibuprofen if this is what keeps up so
0: you're fighting somebody that's trained in a discipline for their whole life and you you've been shown this discipline for, you know, what, a few hours a day.
1: Yeah, uh, and it, I mean it was so yeah, so like what what the history channel would say, right, is that we're there um you know exploring the history, the culture, the martial arts, which was very much the truth. the the, the downside is is you know like some of these locations are like in the middle of a jungle. So they're remote. It takes us two hours to drive to these sometimes right at five or six in the morning. And then we're stuck in traffic. So we don't have the luxury where where we would tell people. And then we jogged for seven miles up the hill. (laughs) Like, no, what, what really happened was we ran past camera for four minutes, six times, like just because we just can't do that, you know? And that's, everyone was like, you must've been in the best shape of your life being on that show. I'm like, That's like saying I did the movie G.I. Jane and I must now be like a sniper. No, like, I mean, there's some things I'm slightly more proficient at because I was incrementally exposed to them, but by no means was I able to train. I mean, we would train, you know, maybe an hour, but like a lot of the training was broken up because at the end of the day, right, we're making a TV show. We're not there so that Jason and Bill can have these wonderful, enriching cultural life experiences. We're there to, you know, show people and highlight the show. And then at the end of it, uh, you know, the, the problem that I had, there was two things that I would have changed had I been the producer of the show, is I wouldn't have built these end fights, and they have to build towards something, so I got that, but the balance was always, we had to make these, these, these fights at the end realistic enough that people would stick around to hopefully want to see us get our butts kicked, or get their butts kicked, or how are they going to do in this, but also not so devastating that literally the next day we had to fly somewhere else and start taping the next day again. So we couldn't have downtime. We couldn't, we couldn't risk. Okay. Well, I got a black eye. Now the next episode, I got to have a black eye, you know, like there's that we couldn't do that. So that, that, that was always a very difficult balance. And especially when there was language barriers um, between kind of figuring out how do we dial in these fights enough where there's sparring exhibitions. And I think that really like, if I were to change one thing, they should have had us go against novices in their own divisions, because then that shows, hey, you you was, you, you guys trained here for a week and there are certain attributes, right? Like, I mean, when I did ju- the judo episode, you know, I've done judo a little bit. I, I have a black belt in jitsu You know, would I have mopped the floor with a white belt in judo? Probably. So that probably wouldn't have made sense. But when they give you a four time world judoka champion, there's nothing competitive about this match. <laughs> like, Right. You know, right. It's it's here's, here's, here's the white guy getting frequent flyer miles getting thrown through the air. So, which is fine. Um, so that was the one issue that we had with, I had with that. And the other thing was, you know, I think that the show, it was a dichotomy because on one hand it opened my eyes to, um, you know, as a mixed martial artist, I got a little cocky with, oh, I know what works and what doesn't work. And to some degree, I do stand by that, that like, if someone said, should I go train karate? My first question would be like, well, why do you want to train martial arts? And if self defense is your answer, I don't really think karate is the best answer, <laughs> um, you know. But on the same token, if you're, you know, if you, I, I, I did not have a tremendous amount of respect for Krav Maga until I went to Israel and saw real Krav Maga and the mindset behind that and and stuff like that. So um, one of the things was that it really opened my eyes to. Uh, not just thinking like, hey, this, the jujitsu was the end all, because even within the parameters of what we're doing as mixed martial artists, that's still a very defined set of circumstances. There's rounds, there's a time limit, you don't have to worry about like, protecting someone else, your back is never to a wall where there's another wall to your left, you don't have to worry about getting hit with a beer bottle. So, um, you know, the question I used to get a lot is what's the best martial arts? Uh, And my answer was, well, why do you want to train? because uh it's like what's what's the best movie well do you want to do you enjoy being scared do you want to learn something i mean it really depends on on what's the end game right so i mean i think that's one of the things that was that was interesting but yeah you like you said we'd go there we'd we'd train for five days because we had to have a bookend of flying in and out usually so four to five days was our typical training sequences and then at the end we would uh you know we would air quote fight someone else
0: yeah well you know we, we would watch that show when we were deployed in Afghanistan. We would watch. We had all the episodes on uh, hard drive. And in our downtime, we'd, we'd put on human weapon in the tent. All, all the Marines would gather around watch. And then we got a kick out of the fact that you guys did a, a McMap episode, a Marine Corps martial arts program, um, of which I'm a black belt. But we kind of considered it a, a, a Mickey Mouse kind of like like ridiculous martial art because it's not really a true one. And it only really makes sense if you're wearing full, you know, battle gear. And so even the guys that were, like, really into Mi'kmaq, they they got out away from that. They got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They got more into grappling and, you know, learning how to to do Kimuras and arm bars and, and that kind of thing. And away from the, the Marine Corps martial arts program. But you guys did an amazing job of, of humoring us uh, with that episode and, and, and treating us as if we were, you know, among... Krav Maga and jiu-jitsu and all that, so I, I appreciate the kindness there. Um, but but I'm surprised you guys didn't do a jujitsu episode considering your background. Um, I, you know you're a, a Gracie uh, black belt, correct?
1: Yeah, I'm, I have a black belt from Henzo Gracie.
0: Yeah, so I you know that would have been an incredible episode. And what I what I learned later when I was looking for you know the second and third season of of the show to to pop up on on these hard drives is despite the incredible popularity you know most shows they get canceled due to to lack of interest you guys were the number one number two show on the entire network and um and and the show ended and so i'm guessing you guys probably had plans to do jujitsu and other martial arts and and it just didn't pan out due to whatever issues with the production company
1: yeah that's that's very accurate so um Backtracking with, there were certain elements that had to tick the boxes for the History Channel. One of the reasons, and I was a huge advocate. Let's go to Brazil. Let's go to Brazil, just selfishly because I wanted to go to Brazil. <laughs> and uh, and um, the reason they didn't do a jujitsu episode was they felt like that that there wasn't enough history and culture behind it yet. Because if you look at some of the martial arts like Japan, like karate or or you know taekwondo, these have been around for a lot longer, and there's a lot yeah. more history behind it. And they also felt like ah, this isn't necessarily you know, there's certain elements of, like, you look at boxing, you look at um, Eskrima, these are very visually easy to follow, easy to understand. Hey, this guy's punching, that guy's kicking, he's winning, he's losing. Um, they were like, these guys are wearing Jedi outfits, and they're kind of <laughs> like they're rolling with each other on the ground. And, like, arguably, Jiu-Jitsu's more you have you have to be a little bit more evolved and you have to really like the people that truly it's like watching chess versus watching you know uh, um checkers right like it's absolutely you, know, you can appreciate it more the more uh, you know you understand it and um so that was one of the things that you know i was bummed we didn't do we did do a, a mixed martial arts episode which i was um you know i don't want to take all the credit for that but I, I it was my idea to, to push that forward and um nice. you know, get that was the closest we got to some of the bjj aspects but um you know the Up until the last episode we did, which was the Taekwondo episode, um, which out of all the episodes we did, the Taekwondo one was the one I was the most nervous about uh, going into because... Uh, just because i've seen some vicious knockouts uh in Mm. taekwondo and if you watch that episode bill gets knocked out by a 135 pound 60 year old korean who just hits him on the button and just face plants him and then that's the episode that i tore my acl in because i was doing things that were far or i was endeavoring to do things far above my pay grade um but even yeah so even after that Uh, Like there was another show on history at the time called Ice Road Truckers. And um, that was just good old fashioned, turn your brain off and watch people curse and get stuck. And, you know, the closer to death you could get, the better. Um, You know, the the thing with our show especially was – up until Human Weapon, History Channel was really known as like the Civil War Documentary Channel, right? It was the World War II and now in color. And it was really just kind of this, this antiquated show. So what they were trying to do, or this series I should say, is they were trying to, to to build a flagship show that wouldn't just be like part of their programming. They were like, let's find a new show that can totally rebrand the network into this like you know the history channel and the discovery channel always kind of were back and forth in terms of like they were the NBC to the cbs to the abc right like they were always kind of each other's uh, um uh competitor so they they put a bunch of money behind advertising the show and it was really a cool experience the problem they had is that from the production company's point of view they were they they were like hey the history channel like they waited forever to say let's make this show and then they went all right, we love it. Let's go. Let's go now. Let's go fast. And this production company, the, like they hadn't done any really big things. They were, they had done stuff for the history channel. They had done some like, like the show snapped and some smaller stuff, but they weren't, the the scale of this production to shoot all this brand new footage and be overseas and logistically come back and edit it and get all the graphics in and you know we don't feel we had all that that motion capture graphic stuff that yep. we had to shoot and fill in and and I, here's a little inside tidbit. The the motion capture guy that would do all the motion capture was my old martial arts instructor Joe Guaitia. So I got him oh, plugged cool. into yeah plugged into doing all that. So um so they did you know like you said the every week it was probably 70% ice road truckers and then there'd be a week or two that we'd be in the number one spot and it is very rare that a network loses that. So my understanding and uh, this this needs to be a sit down between the former president of the history channel and and myself to figure this out but what i was told my understanding is that the um the way that the episodes would work is we'd we'd shoot these episodes we'd have all this footage then they would make it – they'd send it back to Jupiter Entertainment, and they'd make a rough cut. Like, this is what we think the episode should look like, and they'd send that off to the History Channel executives. Then the executives would make their notes. Hey, let's have more of this, less of this. Let's get a little more of this and do this. Then they'd do a fine cut, and then they'd say, okay, this is it. Well, the way they monetize, obviously – television shows is through ad revenue, through commercial space. And they do this thing called the upfronts um, where they, they talk about all the new shows and all the networks and all the buyers for the agencies go, and yeah, we love this. We're right, Here's 300 grand for that. these 12 30 second spots and all this money. And that's how they subsidize it. Well, obviously it goes without saying like new episodes are infinitely more attractive to viewers than here's a rerun. Oh, we saw that one already. So the problem that they would have is that the history channel would have their TV guide. I think that was actually a thing still uh, that would list like (laughs) next week on human weapon is going to be karate. Then the week after that's Krav Maga, the week after that's going to be the McMap episode. And then we'd have the karate episode and then they'd have some issues where they couldn't get the next episode out in time. So they had to show a rerun and Mm. that's death that is death to a network. So they would show a rerun, they'd, they'd lose money. And then they'd have to change because not only did they show a rerun here, now they have this new episode and they got to figure out how do they put this in the future based on this lineup there. I mean, the production company is you know like a month or two out. The, the history channel is thinking three months out, six months out in terms of where they're going to have things kind of fall. So that became a huge issue where um, they were back and forth, back and forth. And, you know to my knowledge yeah we're the only like number 1 or number 2 show that was ever canceled because even after the last episode we had started before the last episode um you know we had meetings about well, what do you guys want to do uh, bill and i had a little bit more of a voice in terms of episodes we wanted to see boxing was on there we had some um some crazy you some some crazy wrestling that was on there but not like regular american wrestling it was like some some Malaysian form of wrestling. We had a, a jiu- Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was on there. We had a bunch of stuff. And then we, we even talked about going back to the mcmap thing what do we do if we run out of actual martial arts because you know there's a there's a number of martial arts but it's a finite number at some point you go what's next and what we talked about was going into more of the the military stuff what's the special forces do here what are the what's the kind of rebranding how the mcmap program works for different stuff so we had a bunch of episodes i think they had about 15 to 20 the history channel wanted to see on paper And, um, you know, at the end of the first, well, I guess first, second season, we basically made two short seasons or one long season, depending on how you looked at it. But I think they actually made it two seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they, they were like, Hey, for sure. We're going to go forward. Then it was like, probably going to go forward. Most likely going to go forward. Hold on for a second. Okay. We're not doing this. Um, you know, which was, which was, uh, it was disheartening, but at the time also, I felt like, um, Uh, You know, I had a lot of good that came from that. I mean, Hollywood's always looking for the next leading man, like, right, like the next action guy and for like a microsecond and i mean like a blink of the eye i had a little bit of heat about like oh this guy could be like an action star he's a moderately good looking yeah he doesn't he doesn't stumble over himself when he talks he's a martial arts guy and he's like in his mid-20s so and you I, got uh, better
0: hair than jason statham so you got that going for you yeah i mean i had
1: i mean any hair is probably better than jason statham but yeah but um Jason Statham's uh, actually a perfect belt in jiu-jitsu. He's a, uh, I, I have a couple of good stories about Statham, but anyways, yeah. So like, you know, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a sexy bastard, isn't he? Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's uh so yeah. So like we did that. And then what happened was, you know, I I was, part of me was like, this sucks. But the other part of me, and this is the part of me that the Hollywood people are like meaning your agents, managers and stuff were kind of pumping into you. is was like, you know, it, it's okay. We, ideally we do this show another year or two, but then we want to take you away from this, this low budget history channel, stuff and it's time to do movies right and that's that's the end game for everybody's be the big avengers action star and um so i started i wasn't super bummed about it not going anywhere i i was with this agency called gersh and i went out on a couple of auditions and i booked like a guest star on like csi new york and a, a recurring character on this abc family middleman show and then uh, the anomaly happened which was the writer's strike in in mm-hmm. los angeles and when the writers strike happened the, all the reunion writers stopped writing which then stopped production which stopped casting which meant that there was just a handful of things that were still going on and it's basically the trail down the trickle down of what was happening so you'd have these big movie stars that you'd only see in movies suddenly doing these recurring guest stars you'd have these series out there yeah you'd have these series like, i remember being in rooms auditioning and there'd be like ryan reynolds in the room with me and i'm like well i I'm not booking this role. And I mean, you want to talk about just <laughs> turning in the shittiest audition yeah. ever, because you know, like for sure you're not Bush booking this when there's like, you're sitting in a room with eight people and you see everybody is like a, a huge TV star. Like, you know, yeah. like and it's like, you're just not, you're like on the come up, this isn't going to happen. So, so that that's, um, you know, kind of put the kibosh on the entertainment industry uh, for a bit. And then um, I started Apex sports agency, which was, uh, sports agency that managed mixed martial artists initially. And we moved into, we moved into uh, extreme sports and did contracts and sponsorships and stuff for that. And started Very in 2011. Good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, with the Apex sports agency, were you managing folks that you had maybe trained with, uh, fought with the folks that you knew um, at first and then growing from there?
1: Yeah. So I think like, like most um, yes is the short answer. So I was kind of left with this, what do I do now scenario, like 2009 to 2010. And what I was left with was, all right, I don't want to fight anymore. Um, and I have relationships on both sides of the, the entertainment world. I have, uh, you know, athlete friends that I've met through, either training, fighting, or being exposed to you through the show. And then I had relationships with, um you know, people that were on in the – that entertainment attorneys, production companies, stuff like that, that I had met either through being set up through my my agent or managers. So I saw an opportunity. Uh, and this is back in, like, 2009-ish when there was only a couple of people ma- really managing fighters. And before all the Malkys of the world and all the – there was, like, Black House, which um, – you know, Ed Sores, who managed uh, – um, Anderson Silva and a couple people was out there, but there was really not a lot of big management companies. And I thought that, you know, that this could really be an opportunity. So some of the people that I had trained with, worked with and known um, guys like Carl Parisian, uh, Dean Thomas, um, a bunch of UFC vets, uh, guys like Lyle Beerbomb, uh, Andrew Fickett, uh, and then a bunch of up and comers. We started managing just the MMA people and that quickly Turned into like also producing some events and putting them on cards, and getting them into bigger events and stuff. And then that segued into some other aspects of um, uh, of extreme sports. Like we had um, Elise Post, who's a, a BMX silver medalist. Um, William Truebridge is like one of the top free divers in the world. A few other Olympic athletes and stuff. The problem is that it's it's outside of sponsorships. It's hard to monetize those people because they don't really make. Um, you know any money from these events so you know like and if they do it's in the in the grand spectrum of things i don't feel comfortable um commissioning something that we didn't do anything for right like they're going to make 10 grand to go to an event we did nothing we can't get get a better contract because they're just favored nations and you know like it's what's the purpose of that so so that kind of hit a wall after several years and um I, I finally got to a point where I really got into cryptocurrency and some real estate stuff and decided, hey, you know what? What if I gave the acting stuff a try again? And I wanted to have a little more control over it. So, and this is just kind of segueing into this This the most recent thing I did is I had uh, a good friend of mine, Tom Malloy, who's, mm-hmm. gosh, he's produced over you know, 18, 19, 20 movies. He literally wrote the book on independent film financing that's on amazon it's uh, i don't i guess can't think of the name off the top of my head but you know he, he's raised a bunch of money he's raised over you know 30 million dollars for independent films and owns a distribution company now and writes scripts and then a good friend of mine charlie Schrem, who charlie owned the first bitcoin exchange bit instant back in um 2011 2012 in new york it has a very interesting story and charlie's working yeah, yeah, oh, real early. Really. Yeah, he's a, he's a super OG. Charlie's wife was a is an aspiring actress, so I kind of had the the epiphany like, wow, what if I put Charlie together with Tom, and they could find a script that his wife liked, and Charlie can finance it, and and uh, the script happened to be this movie, Ask Me to Dance, that has um, uh, just recently been shot in New York in May, and. Which should probably be released early next year. It's a it's a feel good holiday movie about misconnections and it's a it's a funny little low budget comedy that I do think it'll find an audience. It has Joyce DeWitt from Three's Company. Um it's uh Brianna. Are we Evigan. gonna see you dancing it. Oh dear God. Well, you know what? I, I say no, but yeah, at the <laughs> end there's like a group dancing that's very like got you um it's very yeah it's very goofy uh, goofy. different
0: choreography uh, than 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 when you were fighting i'm sure uh (laughs) yeah it's
1: yeah luckily it was it was easier most of my fights weren't choreographed thank god so
0: (laughs) 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 So, Um, i gotta ask you you know and and this is kind of uh off topic and and circling back a little bit but um what was the the worst food that you ate traveling through human weapon um you know shooting those episodes or was it When you were a a contestant on Fear Factor, because I know you guessed uh, you were a contestant on Fear Factor ages ago, what was the worst thing you had to eat? Was it the Fear Factor food or the Human Weapon food? Well, you know that's
1: that's I guess if you use uh, there's a broad definition of what would be food. I guess if you're looking at if you ever look at Fear Factor, I guess if you say anything you put in your mouth and swallow is considered food, then then Fear Factor we had those giant horse grasshoppers and um
0: oh man that was your
1: episode the grass yeah it was yeah it was back when fear factor was doing four stunt episodes and um the like one of them was non-elimination and you'd win a car or some crazy crap um that was pretty crappy but you know overall the the challenge that i ran into is that i would always try to eat like low carb food even through my like atkins and stuff and just when i was when i was fighting and when you're in southeast asia First of all, most of the countries there, they don't have like their their chickens, cows. They're not pumped full of hormones like ours are. So a chicken here is two and a half times as big as a chicken there. But when you're in these remote areas, like you're you know you're in the mountains in um, you know Japan, or you're way you're you're you know you're four miles into the jungle of Malaysia, it's hard to get like you know good food. So you've got these. <laughs> here's here's your two cups of rice and some binto boxes so like i was constantly eating just like shit And i just was always like oh god i just feel like a, a fat piece of crap <laughs> constantly eating stuff like that so most of the food was, was okay i did realize that northern china when we did the um the uh oh gosh okay what was the episode it was a uh, i can't think of the episode but northern china has some of the worst food i've ever eaten in my life um <laughs> That's, yeah. And that's, that's probably the, the worst part of it. Um, and obviously Greece, France, Israel, pff, amazing. Europe food is, is fantastic when we are in the U S obviously that's a no brainer, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was Northern China, uh, stay away from it or, or bring your own food is my, my.
0: Oh, for sure. <laughs> I, I, that, that I'll, I'll, I'll note that for my future travels and make sure that, uh, yeah, that I bring, bring some stuff for the road. If I head over into Northern China, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, when when you when you get uh when you were a contestant on Fear Factor was that the the first time you had met um Joe Rogan was that like before you had known him as a friend yeah
1: that was the first time i met him and then i i didn't um uh, I didn't run into him again for several years after that. I, maybe I not not several, but at least three or four years later, uh, I when I had finally moved to Los Angeles to do jujitsu, and just haphazardly, I went to go train at John Jack Machado's, and I was like, hey, I just want to do no-gi, because I haven't worn a gi since I started fighting in 1998. And they're like, oh, you should go to Eddie Bravo's. And I went to Eddie Bravo's, and Eddie Bravo and, and Joe Rogan have been best friends for years. And yeah. Vicarious- yeah, exactly. And vicariously, I went up to the – the comedy store on, on, um, sunset and saw joe perform and it's a really small room i mean the rooms hold 60 70 people it's not a big spot mm-hmm. and afterwards he's always just hanging out in the back and i was like hey you know and he, he totally joe has a memory like a freaking elephant like he remembered me remembered my story or my name and, and i was like oh i'm training at eddie's he's like oh dude i'm I train at Eddie's all the time you know and that's great and we just built built a, a relationship from that and then he knew that i was fighting and you know used to hook me up with ufc tickets and you know take me out and let me ride coattails a little bit which was uh which was fun
0: yeah, he's he's done all right. He, uh, he has a podcast, too, um, from what I hear, a pretty decent one. Um, does oh, my right. God.
1: Yeah, done done all right. How crazy. I remember, you know, like having the behind the scenes of that. I remember Brian Redman and, uh, you know, like Joey Diaz, Eddie Bravo, myself and Brian Redman used to kind of be the a little bit of the group. Ari Schiffer was in there, too. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the first time. You know, Joe had done, Joe before he was doing the podcast was doing video blog, like uh, uh, blogs for his website where he'd have Brian Redman always like videotaping everything he did. And he was like really before YouTube was even really prevalent. And he would just upload all these video blogs to his JoeRogan.net site. And right, uh, right. and then from that, he's like, you know what? He bought a couple of microphones and had Redman do this this podcasting. And I forget the platform it was even on. This is like the one of the first <laughs> podcast platforms like way back in the day. And I remember watching it and just being like, wow, this is, this had, I mean, it had no focus. It had no, it was just basically Joe uh, Redbin. He sent a microphone, I think to Joey Diaz with some headsets. And I think he gave Eddie Bravo one and they were just like, all just getting high and just, just talking, just like, let's just just talk. And they had some shitty (laughs) graphics that had snow on them and stuff. And it was just like, I remember watching it and just being like, well, this is going to go nowhere, you know, (laughs) you know, but that's one of the things like I've, I've, man, I've just, Joe has always been an inspiration because I think so many people go through life chasing, like from the time we're born, right? That we're like what we're what's drilled into our heads. Is you got to go to school. You got to get good grades so you can get into a good college. so You can amass a bunch of debt so you can go to a grad school. So you can get a really good job, and then you can work your way up through that corporate ladder, and you can make X number of dollars, and that's happiness. But Joe has, um, you know, ever since he, Joe has followed passion first, and his money's come later. Like he he loved uh you know stand up and always does stand up he loved UFC fights I mean he, he was commentating not even commenting he was doing like backstage interviews for the UFC for free for a while you know before yeah. his manager was like um they have money they need to start paying you <laughs> he, and uh, the same thing as podcasts like he didn't do it now people I mean Joe's probably inspired 95 percent of the podcasts that are out there now to see you know just how big and how lucrative podcasting can get. I mean, I think his Spotify deal was 110 or 100 something yeah. something obnoxious million dollars. Um and what's great is I don't think that Joe feels like he works a day in his life. I and mean, of course I'm I'm speaking out of turn a little bit, but um just from my interactions and knowing Joe, you know, I think that's that's awesome. I mean one of his stand up things he used to talk about when he was doing Fear Factor was he's like, yeah, well uh they keep paying me i'll keep showing up and he's like getting these idiots to do dumb shit and i'm just like that's funny you know like because that's (laughs) just joe being joe and i think that's one of the most endearing things about it is that you know he's joe's just a very joe's a very transparent person
0: yeah i mean you know he's having conversations with people that interest him and and friends of his and things like that taping them and getting paid for it and i think the allure of his podcast and podcasts in general is that it's not, I mean, some of them are, are mass produced by whatever, you know, a conglomerate uh, podcast uh, network, right? But, but many podcasts are kind of untethered. They can do what they want, say what they want. They're not controlled by any outside interest, right? And um, right now when you turn on the television, if you're watching, it doesn't matter if it's CNN or Fox News or whatever, there are driving forces behind the content that you're seeing, um, no matter what channel you, you flip to, right? Whereas with podcasts, like a lot of times you can get kind of, uh, I don't know, like, like an unfiltered access to, to what people are really thinking and what people are really um, putting out there, um, which I think is kind of cool. Um, I want to share with the listeners before, before I, I let you go that, um, that you were extremely uh, cool to me, really good to me when I saw you four years ago, um, my my wife and I had our first year anniversary and the week after we were heading to like St. John, St. Kitts in the, in the Virgin islands. And I didn't have a place to watch the Mayweather McGregor fight. I really, really wanted to watch it. And uh, you and your wife were, were very kind to host us as we were passing through Miami, um, you know, uh, out of towners and, and not really having a place. Um, so I just want to say thanks uh, for that. And um, is there anything you want to promote? A- ask me to dance. When, when are we going to see that?
1: Um, I, you know, what that's a great question. That's really up to the distribu- uh, the distrib- uh, distribution company in terms of kind of where that falls. So um, I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess and say that'll probably be Netflix beginning of next year, but um, I will uh, definitely pump out that information as I get it.
0: Sounds good. Where can people find you on social media?
1: So um, it was a big week for me last week. I felt like on my Instagram verified that little blue check mark meant the world. <laughs>
0: so, nice. Very nice. Yeah, yeah right. You're a, um, you're a real boy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now I can get like free Kit Kats or something. I don't know how that works. So, uh, so, um, yeah, so on, on Instagram I'm probably the most active on there and that's, uh, the at Instagram at the Jason chambers. Um, yeah, I'm on there pretty, pretty frequently uh, with posting stories. I'm still trying to figure all that out because, you know, I'm 41 years old. And like, for me, Twitter was like the first real social media platform. I was on disseminating information and I still go on Twitter, but now it's like, you know, I have a 21 year old son and like everyone's on TikTok and it's it's so hard. It becomes a full-time job trying to keep up with these social media platforms.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a new one every minute. And then some of them fall off like MySpace and whatnot, but um, looks like Instagram's here to stay. So, so on Instagram, you're the Jason Chambers.
1: Yeah, yes, Yes. Right. DJ pretty sure that's it.
0: That was <laughs> good. Follow him on Instagram and look out for the release of ask me to dance. Jason, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with us today. I thought this was a, a great conversation and you're welcome back on anytime you want uh, to promote anything. All right, cool, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. You too. And that'll do it for another episode of the Know It Some podcast. My thanks again to our guest this week, the always entertaining Jason Chambers for sharing his time and his stories with us. Really enjoyed that and hope to have him on again sometime. Folks, if you haven't done so already, please head on over to your favorite social media platform and type in Know It Some Pod. We are Know It Some Pod on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, you name it. We are there on social media at Know It Some Pod. And I appreciate all of those who have written into pod at gmail.com with their feedback. Really appreciate that. I do try to read and respond to each and every message that comes in. And that said, I really appreciate it if you go to Apple or iTunes and hit that five-star ranking for us so we can continue to bring you these incredibly interesting guests week in and week out. Uh, all the support has been overwhelming, and I am truly honored to have hosted for the last 16 episodes and hopefully remain your host for the entirety of the show. Folks, it is, is outrageous how much uh, this thing has blown up um, completely and totally took me by surprise uh, the support and the amount of listeners that this podcast has gotten in such a short period of time. Please tell a friend. Please continue to grow this because we have some great stuff in store for you over the next few months. And that is due to your support. So thank you again. And I'll see you next week.